You're listening to Ocean Currents, a podcast brought to you by NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary. This radio program was originally broadcast on KWMR in Point Reyes Station, California. Thanks for listening. everyone. This is Ocean Currents. My name is Jennifer Stock and I am the host for this program. And we bring this program to you once a month that, and focus on lots of ocean topics. On this show, we bring ocean experts in the field to talk about ocean conservation issues, exploration, exploration, research, and how we can all get involved in learning about and helping to protect the ocean. We focus locally here on the California coast, as we have three contiguous national marine sanctuaries here, but go beyond and global as well. Today, we are focusing locally here on the waters off our coast in the Bay Area of California. It's no mistake as to why these waters were protected as national marine sanctuaries by congressional designations. This region has an incredibly rich food web, important breeding and feeding areas, and is dynamic to no end. PRBO Conservation Science has been monitoring the marine ecosystem in these waters to help guide protection, conservation, and management. Cordell Bank and Gulf of the Farallons National Marine Sanctuaries are working together with PRBO Conservation Science to understand how ocean conditions are changing and to better understand how the ecosystem is used by different levels of the food web, from microscopic phytoplankton all the way up to uh, seabirds and whales. So today I have two local marine ecologists with me. I have Lisa Etherington, who is a colleague of mine with the sanctuary, and she is the research coordinator at the Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary and coordinates all the science-related projects relating to understanding and conserving Cordell Bank's incredible ecosystem. And Jaime Yonke, am I saying that right? <laughs> is the Marine Ecology Division Director at PRBO Conservation Science a nonprofit that works to advance conservation through bird and ecosystem research. He is also an alternate member for the Cordell Bank Sanctuary Advisory Council and represents the research community. So thank you both, Lisa and Jaime, for joining me today to talk about the work you're doing and sharing it with our listeners today. It's good to be here. Thanks, Jenny. I haven't had people live in the studio for a while, so this is really exciting for me to see two faces here. <laughs> Most of the people I have usually are by telephone. So would you say it's pretty exciting out there right now with all this wind on the ocean? Yeah, just recently, <laughs> the last couple of weeks, um, if anybody's been out at the beach, they've noticed that uh, the winds have definitely picked up. So we've got those winds coming from the north, northwest, and um, they're really making it a, a pretty interesting environment out there. And uh, we hope to get out in the water here in a couple of weeks to be able to see uh, what kind of uh, implications those kind of winds have on the ecosystem out there. Um, I guess on the island, some of the news that we have is that uh, Cassin's Oaklet, uh, a small bird that breeds, breeds on the island, um, has um, laid eggs already this year and is the, is the earliest breeding they have had since 2002. So oh, things wow. are coming around. That is exciting. So we'll talk a little bit about that as we talk about some more of the stuff. So we've talked a lot on the show about how rich this ecosystem is, but both of you originate from different parts of the globe and have worked in different places. How would you compare the conditions of the ocean off our coast here in terms of biological productivity as compared to other areas where you have studied and worked? 
And hi, May. Let's, why don't we start with you? Um, so I come from Peru, um, but I have had the opportunity to work also in the Bering Sea, Galapagos. Um, I could say that uh, most of the, these places are all very productive systems, but the, the, the best point of comparison between Peru and California is that both are eastern boundary currents. Those are areas where winds, uh, the interaction between winds and uh, the coast result in a very strong upwelling, which brings nutrients and enhance the amount of phytoplankton that you can have in the water, and that's very good for uh, all the wildlife that repen- depends on that. So very similar ecosystem to the California coast. Yes. Interesting. And Lisa, how about you? Um, I've been lucky enough to work in a variety of different marine systems, um, primarily in the Caribbean, in North Carolina, and Alaska before coming to California a few years ago. So I'm relatively new to the California system. But, um, I mean, compared to the Caribbean, it's a very low-nutrient system, so we have less production but overall higher biodiversity uh, in, in North Carolina, it's warm water current, so very different than if you tried to go in the ocean in, in North Carolina as opposed to in California. So in, in the, the estuaries of North Carolina, we primarily have um, nutrients coming from the land, so the productivity is really driven by that nutrient delivery um, from the land. So a difference between estuaries and offshore systems. And in Alaska, I worked in Glacier Bay, um, so it's it's another estuary, but it's um, glacially influenced. So you have a lot of freshwater runoff, and you have extreme tidal currents. And it's kind of the intersection of those two different physical processes that leads to the high productivity there. Um, so we see some of the same species in Alaska that we see here. But I would say um, off the coast of California here, there's a higher diversity of marine mammals and seabirds than what I was experiencing in Glacier Bay. That is so interesting, the whole idea about the um, estuarine-driven nutrients coming from the land versus here our nutrients are really coming up from the seafloor. So that's a good contrast. So the reason I wanted to bring you both on as um, this summer, the sanctuaries and PRBO are doing some research together on the water off the coast of Point Reyes. And I thought it'd be nice to share the type of work you're doing and what you're working towards identifying with your research. Um, this year, PRBO and the sanctuaries are doing some um, oceanographic monitoring work on the sanctuary's research vessel Fulmar, which is a shared research vessel between Monterey Bay, Gulf of the Farallones, and Cordell Bank. Jaime, you've been doing this for a couple of years. Can you give us some background on the history of this monitoring program and um, that PRBO has been leading here. Um, okay. Um, so this uh, work started in 2004. In fact, we started collaborating with the sanctuary since 2005. And this collaboration has come a long way into what is now a joint monitoring program. Um, the objectives of our work uh, are to understand um, the food web in the California current, to try to know more about krill and krill-dependent marine wildlife. Uh, we want to use this information to uh, propose design considerations to improve zoning within the sanctuaries. And we try to communicate our findings to a wide um, group of stakeholders, which includes um, managers, policymakers, and the public. So what does the exact monitoring exactly entail? So you're getting out a boat, and what do you do? <laughs> we do a... We do multiple activities. We try to, our cruises are pretty comprehensive in that we look at the water, the oceanography, we look at the prey, the zooplankton, and we look at the birds. So in a particular day at sea, 
we will do we, we will use instruments uh, we'll deploy instruments in the water to measure physical properties of the water like temperature salinity we will um, use nets deep nets in the water to, to take a sample of water the type of organisms that are living there and as we are moving along our transects we'll be counting the birds and mammals that we see uh, toward one side of the boat and all the the, the boat is equipment equipped with with two systems. One is an eco sounder, which is an instrument that allows us to um, measure indirectly the amount of biomass of krill that is in the water. And it has another system that uh, where it takes water from the oceans, it runs it through a system in the ship. So it continuously measures temperature and salinity of the water. So then once we're back in the lab, we're able to relate all these different layers of information uh, to understand better where birds and mammals congregate and why. Mm -hmm. So do you see a lot of variability from station to station? And, and that's basically the goal of the study? Uh, yes, we do see a lot of variability. For example, um, there are areas uh, where, that are highly influenced by the bay plume which is a which is a um, run runoff of fresh freshwater water coming from san francisco bay uh -huh. we have areas like over cordell bank which tend to be the first ones to respond to the winds where you can s clearly see the signal of upwelling um we have areas um where we tend to see aggregations of of, of, of whales in this case uh, again cordell bank tends to be a place a good place to see uh blue whales this is why I like talking to people like you, because you know this ecosystem on this microfinite level, whereas most of us just think of blue water and whales. But to be able to explain like where these freshwater plumes come out and they meet and they make a difference, it's really, really interesting. And there's really a lot of structure to the ocean. I think a lot of people don't think about that. They think about it being this continuous, homogeneous place where these animals are. But the, really the physical properties of the ocean drive where we find the animals. Lisa, you bring up a good point. And I know we've talked about this before, but let's, let's talk about it. In the spring, this is the upwelling season. So we're getting into this new season and there's a different stratification happening. Can you just talk a little bit about the spring and what the layers of the water are like versus the winter months. Let's just do a little compare there. Sure. In the winter months, um, you know, it's really our storm season, and that's when the the water column or the, the whole mass of water from the surface down to the seafloor is, is pretty, um, it's pretty similar. So it's being mixed up. It's being churned so that it's, it's similar from the surface to the bottom, whereas um, when we start to get the, the really warm water or the, the, um, the sun's heating in the summertime, we'll get what we call stratification. So we just have different layers of the ocean. So you've got the warm layers on top, the cool layers on the bottom. So it separates out by density of the water. And the phytoplankton really need those warm waters so that they can stay in the surface layers where they can photosynthesize. So what happens during upwelling is that we get this, this churning of water from these strong winds that brings up these high nutrient waters from the bottom. But we also need to have those um, the winds kind of die down for a little bit so that then the phytoplankton can remain in those surface waters and can photosynthesize. If the winds are just really strong and that continues for weeks and weeks, phytoplankton are going to be pushed offshore and aren't going to have a chance to really have a large um, growth in the population or have a bloom.
So that was a, an issue a couple of years ago. We had just wind, 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 wind. When is the wind going to stop? And and then a lot of the nutrients got pushed off, and we had a tough year that year for the auklets, I remember. Um, going back to some of the research with the, the net sampling and the seabird and mammal observations, Jaime, how, how does this pair with the monitoring going on with the Farallon Islands? You mentioned earlier that the auklets are already breeding, and how do you pair that information? Because they're so interconnected with the breeding and... The food. Um, so PRB has, has been studying seabirds on the Faroe Island for about 42 years now, since n- 1967. Uh, and this is a cooperation with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Um, our long-term data sets enable us to answer questions about what is causing seabird colonies to fail or to succeed. And in this case, we were able to document, for example, in 2005 and 2006, we saw a complete nesting failure of Cassin's auklets. Uh, they were not able to raise a single chick in any of these um, two years. And, and this, was, this, this was never observed in our long-term 42-year data set. Um, in, this, in our case, well, what we found at sea from our monitoring was that uh, waters were warmer than normal, that winds were also uh, weaker than normal, we found that there was less krill in the water than we saw in the previous years. And the few krill that was available was not in the adult class sizes that the birds uh, feed on. Mm-hmm. But there was, uh, there was a few krill, but they were in very small, small juvenile stages. And that was, that was not good. 2007, 2008, as you mentioned, the winds were much stronger, but they were a little bit too strong. Um, so there was the, we didn't see the, le- the, the, the levels of production that we um, would expect for this, um, typically for the California current. Right. So those Cassin's auklets are really an important bird as far as it, an indicator of the ocean's health as far as their success goes, right? Yes. In this case, we consider the Cassin's like a good sentinel species for this region. And they're also endangered? Are Cassin's endangered? I'm not sure. I'm not sure uh, either. I'm not sure either. <laughs> where else do they breed? We have nowhere on the Farallon Islands. Do they breed anywhere else on the California coast? Or for, I think they breed up in Oregon too, right? Yes. So I think the southernmost colonies are probably on the San Benitos, Guadalupe Islands. Oh, wow, I think okay. there's some. They're trying to um, encourage some monitoring of Santa Barbara Island. Uh, they nest on the Farallons where we have about... I think it's about 20,000 birds or so. That's a lot. Um, but they are most common in the Gulf of Alaska and along the Aleutian uh, Islands. And I think that the center of their distribution is somewhere around Vancouver Island. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. For those of you who haven't seen a Cassin's Auklet, they're basically a big tennis ball, not much bigger than a tennis ball, that sit on the water, these round little fluff balls. And when they take off. They're these cute little feet that paddle off and they run away or dive down below the water. It's really, they're really, really beautiful little birds. So as far as the, the Cassin's auklets being such an indicator, and we're talking about different timing of the winds, does, do you think that all of these conditions and how they're so variable have contributed to the disappearance of salmon this past year? I know there's a lot of different theories on the table of what happened to the salmon, but how much does oceanography play a role in that? Um, so Theoretical here, just a yes. couple ideas. So the smalls that, uh, that enter the ocean in a particular year uh, remain at sea 
to feed and grow for about three years before they come back onto land to spawn. So, for example, last year was the we, spe- we experienced the lowest salmon returns, uh, and this correlates well with uh, what happened in 2005 when we experienced the first complete failure of the auklets. Um, there we see this three-year lag. Again, I think for this year now, 2009, we are um, expecting to have very low summer returns. And this, again, correlates well with the uh, uh, nesting failure of the birds in 2006. I guess if we can just... Um, in 2007, birds did slightly better, so hopefully things are going to start uh, improving over the next few years. Last year, casting circles have an average uh, productivity, an average print success. So I guess that, that that hopefully means that salmon conditions may be yeah, uh, it takes a while. For the better. Yeah. It doesn't just switch like that. That's yes. what's pretty amazing about this big ecosystem. It doesn't just come back in one year. So we'll see what happens. So as far as... Um, this effort, it's been going on since 19, what did you say, 94? The work on the island, 1967. And the oceanographic profiling? Since 2004. 2004. So this is taking a pro, um, a cr- taking place across Gulf of the Farallones and Cordell Bank sanctuaries. Lisa, as a coordinator of research and science information for the sanctuary, how does this information help in your research goals for the sanctuary? Well, first we need to characterize what the marine ecosystem looks like in our sanctuary. So we first need to know who's there, when are they there, how do things vary spatially and temporally. So the information that PRBO Conservation Science is is gathering is really providing us, you know, a lot of baseline information about some of these spatial and temporal patterns. Um, and so also trying to, to monitor these populations over time, it really gives us an understanding of What's causing the changes that we see in, in seabirds such as the Cassin's or Why do we see changes in the abundance of blue, blue whales that we see within our sanctuary? Is it a, a human activity that's causing that, or is it some kind of natural fluctuation? So understanding the physical components and monitoring that is really a crucial part of this and trying to understand how the, the physical habitats of the ocean environment are changing and what that means in terms of the animals that are out there. So that work is definitely um, very important for us. And we've also been doing a monitoring program uh, that was started in 2004 as well, but it really concentrates on just the feature of Cordell Bank itself. Um, it's been known that this area is a hot spot for marine mammals and seabirds, and so um, the program that we initiated was to really understand some of those smaller-scale features that may be um, leading to the aggregation of animals around this um, seafloor feature. So um, the work that PRBO is doing is really helping us to put that in context to figure out the contribution of um, the area right around Cordell Bank um, to this overall ecosystem and how it compares with a a larger or more regional uh, sampling approach. I can imagine this information is extremely important, especially right now while we're facing some potential large-scale global threats on the ocean. What threats do you consider to be the most pressing for the Cordell Bank region? A lot of folks think, oh, it's offshore, but it's a really important area for marine life. Um, What do you think are some of the more pressing threats in that area? Well, we've identified a couple main threats that are either present or there's the potential for those threats. Uh, One of these is vessel traffic, and that includes the potential for oil spills, for discharge, 
Um, it also includes the potential to either disturb or harm uh, marine mammals, and that could be just um, changing their behavior or it could be physically actually striking those animals. So that's one of the things that we're interested in is where are these animals congregating and looking at the patterns of vessel uh, traffic in the area and trying to see if there might be some potential areas where those two are overlapping and it might be a concern. So that's definitely something we'd like to do with some of the data from PRBO as well as some of the data that we're collecting within the sanctuary um, is to understand how vessel traffic might be a potential problem. Um, we definitely have identified climate change as a potential threat and pressure um, on the sanctuary resources, and so that's something that we're trying to um, trying to think about what we need to do to monitor um, different ocean conditions to be able to understand the impacts of um, climate change on the ecosystem. And I'd say maybe one of our other top ones would be um, harvesting. Uh, we definitely r recognize that um, th there are different types of fishing practices, and some are um, better than others. And um, we have noted some um, some habitat um, disturbance due to uh, bottom tending gear, and um, that is definitely something that that we look at in terms of of habitat um, uh, habitat protection. Is something we're you know we're concerned about. Um, and also just the um, fishing that, that uh, has higher amounts of bycatch is a concern for us as well. Excellent. I know there's a big report coming out pretty soon that yeah. you've been working hard on, That's and that'll right. be a, a great summary of some of the, the current conditions and some of the threats that are coming online. As far as the use of the data for PRBO, Jaime, can you talk a little bit about how you're all planning to use the data? I understand that some of the um, data may be used to help designate federal marine protected areas. How are you, how is that, um, how are you going about doing that? Or is it still a little too far off or? I, well, we have been talking more now in the terms of improving ocean zoning and working with the sanctuaries and the current legal frameworks to come up with solutions that help uh, protect some of the main foraging habitats for the birds or main areas of concentration for whales and and other marine mammals, and at the same, that's, uh, at the same time to try to uh, figure out which areas should be used or are being currently used for uh, fishing or shipping lanes to try to come to try to minimize the overlap of um, activities that can negatively affect um, marine wildlife. Mm -hmm. So, is this mainly associated with the California Marine Life Protection Act, or is this going into the federal waters? Um, we contribute information. Uh, for the Marine Life Protection Act regarding birds and their foraging activity around the Faroe Islands. But the um, Marine Life Protection Act only has juridic jurisdiction over um, the three nautical miles adjacent to shore. Um, so hopefully over the next few years there will be some sort of federal um, effort toward this uh, and we'll be more than interested in working together with the sanctuaries to... Um, come up with some, uh, propose some design considerations for these uh, potential protected areas. Yeah. So I know we're still in the process of getting the state ones designated, so it'll be interesting mm -hmm. to see where this progresses to. Excellent. Well, for those just tuning in, we've been talking with Jaime Yanke from PRBO Conservation Science and Lisa Etherington from the Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary. And we're just talking a little bit about some of the monitoring efforts that are going on in the waters offshore here and how, how the data is used to help protect 
this ecosystem. We're going to take a short break in just a minute or so here, and I hope you'll stay with us. Thanks for tuning in to Ocean Currents. This is Jennifer Stockwart on Ocean Currents, and in the studio with me today, I have Lisa Etherington from the Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary, and Jaime Yonke from PRBO Conservation Science. And PRBO and the sanctuaries are collaborating this summer with doing some monitoring efforts off the coast, monitoring that's been taking place for a few years now, but um, working together with the sanctuary with the, the shared research vessel. And uh, we were talking earlier a little bit about how the how this monitoring is helping identify um, areas where prey concentrates and the role of the dynamics in the ocean with predators like Cassin's auklets. But um, we'd be remiss to not mention, you know, this global climate change happening. And how do your monitoring efforts contribute to preparing for climate change? We know it's on its way in some form or shape or any other so how do we how do you shape your monitoring efforts and use this information to help prepare for that as far as helping to manage this place and keep it healthy um so as i as I mentioned before uh fish of commercial value like the salmon, even the rockfish um both have declined or failed to recover despite all our management efforts um the case, in this case salmon and rockfish depend on the same types of food consumed by seabirds the seabirds that we monitor in the Farallon islands. Uh, some of these seabirds, uh, the reproduction follows similar trends, like the abundance of the salmon and the abundance of the rockfish. So we can really use these seabirds and our monitoring to understand, to learn more about what's going on at sea and what may be happening with the biomass of these uh, fish. So what what we aim to do with our monitoring is to try to understand better how climate has or will affect the marine environment and the seabirds. And all the different data sets that we collect allow us to do that. We, we don't just count birds. We try to look at the ecosystem as a whole, and we have all these multiple layers that allow us to see the interactions and how things work. We want to be able to um, determine what are these ecological relationships um, th that affect the birds now uh, so we can then extrapolate and see what may happen in the future. And again, because because birds are seem to be a good indicator of the fish, uh, we may use the, our bird um, data to uh, predict what we should expect um, will happen with the fish over the next few years. Um, and we are really aiming to produce some sort of uh, decision tools that could uh, help guide fishers managers. Uh, on what they um, do to um, manage the specific fisheries they are responsible for. So we want to really support, uh, support um, sustainable fisher, fisheries practices in California by the, developing these tools that could facilitate um, their work and your work. With the sanctuary. Yeah. How about for you, Lisa, as far as the efforts towards your goals and preparing for climate change and keeping Cordell Bank a healthy place? <laughs> 
Well, I mean, the threat of climate change really highlights the importance of these monitoring programs um, so that we can really understand how we've already seen some changes as well as to be able to predict what the future changes are going to look like. So we've been trying to find some funding to purchase some additional oceanographic equipment to collect some additional data than what we're collecting now that will help us to understand um, the properties of these ocean habitats that can influence um, animal abundance in the area. So, yeah, I feel like that these monitoring programs are really uh, important for us in trying to track these changes and trying to separate out anthropogenic inputs as as opposed to just natural fluctuations. Right, and and the natural fluctuations go beyond just seasonal change. There's El Nino events and the Pacific Decadal Oscillation, a 10-year event that kind of changes. So it's kind of hard to isolate, I bet, which what's really going on here. Now, you mentioned, Lisa... um, there have been some changes that have seen. We've seen a couple changes so far. Can you just go through some of those? I mean, I think thinking about the arrival of Humboldt squid is maybe a potential. We That's a new thing. They've just come in the last few years. And what else would you say has been potentially related to these changes? Right. I know there have been some predictions in terms of the um, the changes in the intensity and the timing of upwelling. So that um, in 2005 and six, where the Cassin's Auklets didn't do well, that was a year where upwelling was much later. Um, it was very strong later in the summer, but it's that crucial time period in the springtime when a lot of these organisms are trying to feed their young, or it's a critical reproductive time period that they're really counting on that food resource out there. So if upwelling timing and intensity is um, is altered, um, then that's really going to have a major implication on the ecosystem. So any kind of disruption like that um, could be, uh, you know, a, a trend or something that we're seeing with climate change. Mm-hmm. It'll be interesting to see what's going to happen this year. It's, I mean, just like you were saying earlier, with the timing of it all, the Cassins were ready to breed, but the food wasn't there a couple years ago. And it sounds like this year we may have a nice early start. So it'll be interesting to see how it carries out. As far as um, we know, this climate change is going to happen. And what are what are the um, ideas behind how can we best prepare for it to come? And it sounds like da-da, this huge doom is coming, but there's change happening. And so how, what is the best thing that we can do for marine ecosystems that are really productive, like this region here between Gulf and Cordell, as far as preparing for the worst? I think one of the things we want to do is try to reduce as many of the other threats that we possibly can. Uh, if we if we can't control much of climate change, at least on our local scale here, um, we can try to eliminate all those other things that might be um, causing harm to the ecosystem. So instead of having climate change adding on top of four or five other things that are causing stress to the system, um, if we can reduce some of those other stressors, then hopefully we can have a more healthy uh, ecosystem with all of its sort of functioning parts. So if we're able to, um, you know, kind of increase the overall biodiversity and the ecosystem functioning, then hopefully uh, it increases the ability of these systems to be able to adapt to climate change. Excellent. I was listening um, to CNN a couple, it was last year, and there were a couple people testifying to a climate change committee about the marine environment, and they were really talking about making these buffers, these areas, reducing the impacts to help, and also um, creating more marine protected areas, just part of the reducing impacts. So it was kind of interesting to see. 
So um, we got a couple minutes left here, and as marine scientists, you're both you both see these these micro levels, like we we're talking about earlier, the currents and the, pe- the these um these oh what is the word anyway these micro level patterns where you you can really tell where the the outflow of the bay is and how it affects the ecosystem and whatnot. But most of us here in the Bay Area, I mean, we realize we have the bay and the ocean. But what do you think is the most important thing for people to keep in mind when um, they're thinking about voting, or what's the most important thing you think they need to know about the ocean in regards to being a good marine ocean steward? I guess you were talking about mesoscale features. Those are those medium to small types of uh, processes in the yeah. ocean. Uh, I guess the point is that the ocean is not just a bathtub filled with water, that you have a very variable very variable and very dynamic um, ecosystem. And we really need from all these layers and all these specific features, um, which allow for production, high phytoplankton, uh, and uh, to aggregate in in specific areas where birds and mammals and other fish uh, can make um, use of, of them. Yeah, I mean, a lot of us may not get out to particularly Cordell Bank Sanctuary. I know it's pretty far out there. Some some hardy fishermen might get out there and some to do some whale watching and, and observations of seabirds. But um, for the rest of us that maybe don't get out there very often, it, just the understanding that it um, that the ocean really provides so many ecosystem services to humans, um, you know, atmospheric and climate regulation is something that we don't think about, but the oceans play a really important role in. Um, phytoplankton are producing about half of the oxygen that we consume, so we don't see those little microscopic uh, plants out there, but they're they're doing a good job producing oxygen for us. And of course, you know, a lot of our food comes from the ocean, so we need to appreciate it even if um, we're not able to get out on the water ourselves. Excellent. That's great. Are there any resources or websites that either of you'd like to share to allow people to learn a little bit more about the work that your organizations are doing? We do have one website um, with the Central California Sanctuaries that is really kind of a compilation of the natural history of Cordell Bank, Gulf of the Farallons, and Monterey Bay National Marine Sanctuary. And it's called um, the Simon website, or it's Sanctuary Integrated Monitoring Network. And I believe it's www.sanctuarysimon.org. So that's one place where you can find out a lot of information on the different animals and the habitats in the sanctuaries. And then it also lists all the research projects, not all, but at least some research projects that are going on in the sanctuaries. And you can find out more about PRBO Conservation's work in the sanctuaries there. And there's some graphs and whatnot I've seen um, on that website that kind of show the trends to date. So a nice place to get some visuals for all of this. How about you, Jaime? Any other things you'd want to add? Um, you could also visit, uh, I guess, PRBO website, uh, www.prbo.org. Um, but most of our information and the data we have, that we have collected jointly on the cruises uh, is posted at the Simon website. And you can see, like, there's multiple uh, figures there, and you can really see what's going on out there on the krill, on the ocean, and on the birds. Um, uh, yeah, and one other website I wanted to add to that, actually, um, it's off the PRBO website, but I check in on it every once in a while, is the Farallons blog. 
lostfarallons.blogspot.com. And I just think this is so cool that you guys are doing this because it's such a place that no people are not allowed to visit. It's a refuge. And the biologists out there that work for PRBO are creating updates that people can see with photos some videos and uh, seasonal things that are happening on the island. So it's a great place, lostfarallons.blogspot.com. And I believe there's a link off PRBO's website to yes, that. Yes, you're right. It's really cool. That's what I was learning about when the uh, elephant seals were coming back and checking in on when things are going on. It's fun. Since I can't get there, I'd like to watch it remotely. Anyway, I just want to say thank you so much for sharing your time with us today. I know you both are incredibly busy writing grants, trying to get money to help do this work, and um, your passion and your energy for this is so important. So thank you for taking the time to come today. Thanks for having us. Thank you for inviting us. Ocean Currents is part of the West Marin Matters series each Monday at 1 o'clock. You can tune in to learn about environmental and economic issues that pertain to us locally and globally. To hear past episodes of Ocean Currents, you can go to cordellbank.noaa.gov and click on the radio show link, and you can sign up for a podcast there, too, if you want to hear the back show, the shows from the past. Uh, next month on the show, I have an author coming on, Dan Bartolotti, and he's the author of Big Blue, and it's a book that was recently published on blue whales. And so far, this is one of the only books I've read that really has a comprehensive look at their natural history of what we know about blues, blue whales, which you can imagine being a pretty hard thing to understand, um, and our human history of whaling, which was a really difficult part of the book to read, but really interesting as well. So Dan will be talking about his book and the scientists that he worked with to talk about the current research and efforts as well. So that should be interesting next month. But until then, thank you for tuning in again. And remember, these coastal winds are actually a very good thing for the food web out here. So hold on to your hats and enjoy the upwelling. And we will be back next month. Thanks so much for tuning in. Thanks for listening to Ocean Currents. This show is brought to you by NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary on West Marin Community Radio KWMR. Views expressed by guests on this program may or may not be that of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and are meant to be educational in nature. To learn more about Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary, go to cordellbank.noaa.gov.